You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. The button of anticipation has been pushed, Bracken. Ever so gently. Actually, I, I smashed the mouse pretty hard on that thing. Did you? <laughs> yeah. With authority. Yep, my pointer finger. Well, bam! We're, we're recording. Yeah, it knows it's been pushed. <laughs> yes, it does. The button's been pushed, as you say. Uh, you're holding out on me, Bracken, and I don't know why. <laughs> well, you, you you weren't there for me, Kirk. Yeah, Bracken called me yesterday morning, and I was uh, busy busy with the new house stuff from like sunup to sundown, and I missed your call, and then I forgot. And that's a rarity on my end. And now Bracken's all mopey. I'm not mopey. I just, <laughs> I wanted to wait to tell you what you missed until we got on here. What did I miss? I was calling for you to talk sense into me. Oh, no. You didn't leave me a voicemail. There was no text file. There was no time. So I called you at, I want to say, 924. It was pretty early, yeah. Race started at 930. And I was undecided if I was running the seven mile or the 16 mile version. And I was trying <laughs> to have you talk some sense into me, which which race to do. Well, I, I didn't even know you were racing. Kirk, Kirk, this is the, my, my life moves unpredictably. I feel like we're drifting apart here. I know. So what did you decide? Well, there's here's the deal. I signed up for the 15 mile race okay. because they had several different race distances. But for the 15 mile, if you wanted to do that one, you paid in an extra $20 and then the winner takes the pot. Oh, but then I signed up like two days in advance. I heard about it. It was just so hot and humid. And I was beat up from a week of training a little bit. And I thought, you know what? I'd rather just go run the seven and a half mile loop. because It was two loops or one and just tempo it. Get a good hard tempo. Then I can train again on Monday. Yeah. 15 and a half on tra- trails and technical trails is going to leave me pretty beat up. So not to interrupt, sorry, but what, what park was this in? Do I know? This it? was at Alpine Valley. Oh, is that Alpine? So yeah, yeah. We've, yeah, it's got hills. That's a good yeah. undulation. Okay. But the backside is where most of it was on the mountain bike trails, which you haven't been on very much of, unfortunately. Right. Okay. Yeah. So to keep myself from running the long race, because I knew I'd be tempted, I only brought VJ Max in my little ankle ped socks, and I didn't bring a waist belt or water or fuel so that I would just show up, do my warm up, get a hard tempo and then come home. Okay. And then the race director was giving me a little bit of a guilt trip about it. So I jogged back to the car and I called Lisa. Okay. She didn't pick up. I called oh, Kirk. Shit. He didn't pick up. Oh, I look no. at my watch. It's 927. <laughs> race starts in three minutes. And I said, you know what? Let's do big things. And I went and I raced the, but the course was, uh, he wheeled it. It's longer than GPS says because it's so twisty that GPS mm-hmm. can't fall in the trees. So it's 8.2 miles per lap. So it was 16.4. Oh boy. I am so sorry. I don't think I saw your call Bracken until maybe two hours after it happened. So I was not going to be helpful regardless. So 
What the happened? fastest I've ever run on that 8.2 mile loop is 57 minutes. And that was all out effort. Okay. So I figured it's going to be over an hour per lap. For sure. And I only, I don't have, I don't have my hokas and I don't have a belt or a pack. I don't have water and I don't have fuel. So it's going to be a long day. Water stops though? There was a station at the lap point. So you could just get it once. Uh, and then that three miles in there was a station, but I didn't need it lap one. So I took two sips of water. Oh boy. You know what the problem here is? The real problem here is that you're just, uh, you're kind of under the radar in social media, you know, in this world, everybody likes to tell people that they're going to do something. And then they post about the fact they did something, maybe an IG story update. Not that I was looking at any of that yesterday, but you're just silently floating through the world without letting people know what you're doing. So you're the problem. Real G's move in silence like lasagna. I don't know what that means, the lasagna thing, but I like it. It's just silent G in lasagna. That's funny. Okay, continue. That was it. It was a long, it was hot. It was humid. I didn't have any water. <laughs> You're smiling right now a lot, so that's okay. My body held up. Yeah. So I decided I'd run the first lap high end aerobic. And I, my, my goal was to just r- smooth the course out on the first lap. You, what was it? Feather the gas. Yeah. Coast up the hills, roll down the hills and just turn over well on the flats, but not like ever. And then second lap, just empty the tank. So I did that pretty well. Came through. I had my VJ uh, hat. I had put a whiskey ice ball inside of it and wrapped it in a towel and put it under the transition table. So I came through, put that on my head, got the nice cooling factor and took off. And I ran the first mile like 35 seconds faster than the first lap and the second one like 20 and I rolled my ankle hard. What? And I couldn't run downhill from that point on. So I'd hobble the downhill, try to keep my form together on the flats and then hit every single uphill like it was an interval because that was the only part I could extend. And, okay. I, and I ended up running the exact same splits lap one to lap two with 100% more effort lap two because oh. the, the downhills were so slow and the uphills were so much faster that they just balanced each other out evenly. And this is a like a mass start race, racing as we know it. Mass start, but there are probably only 30 people there, 40. Okay. So your fitness, you held up. I mean, your ankle, ankle yeah. going to be okay? Yeah. It's, it was one of those, you know, it's going to be fine, but you, you just can't plant on it. Yeah. And it's one, it's, it's not the first roll that gets you, it's the second one. And so you got to be, well, it is, can be the first one, but the yeah. second one is the one that'll put the nail in the coffin. So you got to be super careful not to roll it again. So I stopped that quick, retied it tight and tried going. So, you know what? I had a blast. I never crumbled, never fell apart. It was hot, but I, I never really felt like I was suffering from the lack of water or fuel and, uh, took 220, got a two hour, 20 minute long, hard run in. Awesome. And felt like, hey, if I can at 183 pounds and and 12 miles per week hold up to that, I'm a happy man. Um, well, I will say that if I did answer when you called, I would have told you to do the 15 mile race. I would not have talked sense into you. I would have pushed you that direction. So it all ended up at least in the same. I, I knew what you were going to say. I just wanted, I was going to ask you, is it, I would have said, is it dumb to go out there with no water and fuel? And you would have said, no. We do long runs like that all the time. Go do it. Yeah. And if you're not, if it's a pseudo training race, then yes, yeah. nail it. Good for you. Super glad I did it. Saw Dan Sanders out there. Oh, nice. Hey, Dan. And uh, XC Thrillology is the company that puts it on. They're putting on 
just dozens of races all over the place all the time. They put on a, a fun event, little what? mom and pop shop. They sell VJs at their running shoe store. What? That's awesome. He saw me, he came up, he's like, hey, if you ever need a pair of those, I sell these. I'm like, do you deal with Matt? He's like, yeah, yeah, Matt. I'm like, Matt and I go back a little bit. <laughs> You're like, I'm hooked up. Sorry, man. Did, so uh, did you win that pot of gold? Took home 70 big ones. You took 50%, 50, 30, 20 was the split first, second, third. And what place did you take? I took first. Oh, you won? Yeah. Congratulations. And they, they did an age grading results. So it was age and gender graded. So they put your finished time in and there's this website where it calculates it. So I think I crossed the finish line like 30 minutes ahead of second place. And I won by three minutes because of the age grading. So I almost I almost lost it. Oh, that, interesting. So it's like an age handicap. Yeah, it's like a 43-year-old guy was like, he was his time was handicapped in it and it got it got him close to me oh I, I don't know if i like that to be honest with you that style i like it if if it's accurate but that's subjective in nature to start with yeah i mean they have pretty solid charts out there but hmm. it keeps you running hard i would have dogged it in because of my ankle but i kept surging the hills to to try to keep my time down are you sore today yeah my right leg is so sore from compensating my my right calf kept wanting to cramp because on the hills what i had to do was gallop down them yeah. so i hit with my right leg every single time down the hill and then like dainty the left so it took it took probably 90 percent of the downhill pounding there for the last hour mm-hmm. so that's that right side sore but other than that nothing crazy then it was the right move congratulations on your on your dub thanks this is a big win <laughs> big big win i feel bad i wasn't there for you bracken that's all right I heard your advice in my ears and I took it. Yeah, I would have said do the long one. And so I, I texted Lisa just to let her know I might be later than I thought and said, hey, I'm thinking about doing the long course. And then I left before I could hear because the race was about to start. And when I got back, her text said, you should definitely go for it. So oh, okay, you and Lisa good. were on the same page. Good. And what's your, what's your, let's just say weakness as an athlete right now is stay power. Right. Sure. So go yeah. in and put some time with an elevated heart rate for longer, I think is only going to benefit uh, more than the shorter race, most likely. So, yeah, yeah you sharpen exactly quick, right. you sharpen quick. Stay power is is your ticket to, to yep. podiums. I had something happen that has only happened a few times in my life with two miles to go. It was like someone uh, like I had to pop my ear and my my hearing went all like distorted yep. for the rest of the race. I've probably only had that happen a handful of times in my life. And I think that was the dehydration or whatever. It's heat. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. It was it was like someone turned on noise canceling headphones for the rest of my race. You get that ringing in your ears, almost like someone kind of fired a gun near you. That's at least how I can get. And then they kind of plug up on you like you're underwater a little bit. Yep. Yeah. And it was a pop. Like It, it didn't come on gradually. It just it was suddenly there. And I, I tried popping my ears. I thought, this is weird. Hope I don't pass out. But I never felt dizzy or anything. Just you got to that point where okay. body starts shutting down the non-essentials. Like hearing, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but my equilibrium was fine. I never fell. And it was it's a pretty technical trail for about half of it. So it was good. All right. I got a trail race, trail race coming up in oh, three weeks, I guess. Fourth of July. I'm going on the second. On but the second. yeah, on Friday. But um, you know though. Your story, your race, you kind of you kind of hit all angles of our topic of the day today. So you got something fresh in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. I will introduce it, I suppose, because I wanted to talk about it. 
which is um, well, it's three things really. We want to talk about the fundamental like terrain of that that is running and how to approach it and just chat it all out. And those three things are literally simple as it gets: uphill running, downhill running, and flat running. And you think, well, it's still running. Yeah, it is running, but the approach is different depending on, um, you know, well, first, if you're racing, second, strategy, third, what your strengths and weaknesses are. And I had uh, I had a couple athletes this week, Bracken. Um, one was specifically asking about the downhills. Like, how do I – I'm terrible downhiller. I don't know how to get better. And it was a no downhill left behind workout, for example. And it was one of those where it was like, that was the emphasis. And then I had another athlete where I had them doing tempo uphills and they have access to mountains. They can tempo for 45 minutes uphill, up mountain, which I know, and that just make you jealous. But, and it was more like, how do I gauge my effort and what should I do if I need to power hike or shouldn't I? And then just like, if those two athletes had questions about it, I, I think there's always plenty more that want to want to hear it chatted out. And then why not throw flat running in there too? Because then we'll just uh, you know bring this thing full circle. How's that sound? I like it. Let's hit them all. The trifecta. The trifecta. Yeah, but but you did it all this weekend. I guess it, aside from your ankle, I guess changing your strategy. I'm actually curious. Let's say on lap one, just to chat out what's going through your head while you were doing it. Like, did you have any thoughts in three different sections, the the flats, ups and downs, or, or how did you approach it in general? I was trying to stay real cognizant of it, actually, because in a race like that, it's so long that you have you have a lot of time to make mistakes. And the worst thing you can do is be going backwards on lap two. So I wanted to come through lap one with something in the tank to make a move. Yeah. And that means not taking crazy damage lap one. So I tried to think of it like the way water would kind of flow through the course. Like okay. When it hit a downhill, it's just going to take off and go naturally. Mm-hmm. But it's not aggressively accelerating. It's just going with the land. And that's kind of, I mean, it sounds mm-hmm. like like I'm a hippie talking here. But And then if it would hit the next uphill, it would carry that momentum through, but eventually it would kind of peter out. And that's kind of yeah. how I took mm-hmm. the downhills. I let my momentum carry myself, carry me into it. But as soon as that momentum petered out, then I just kind of picked my way up to the top. I don't want to push my quads into the ground at all. I just wanted to float up them. And then on the flats, just it would just casually, efficiently meander around the flats. And that's what I wanted to do. Again, I didn't want to be pushing on the gas, but I don't want to be mm-hmm. breaking ever that first lap. Well, they call that the uh, letting the hills win approach. Yeah. Uh, which I've I've executed a number of times in races. And that water approach isn't hippie. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's. The concept of flattening the course, that you don't push the uphills and back off on the downhills. You just try to keep the same level of effort the entire time. And then the goal second half was to attack everything. Usually, if I were very fit, I would always lean into the downhills. But I don't have that resistance to impact to be able to hit 16.4 miles hard. And the effort of the the 16 would worry me less than the impact of the 16. So I had to backload my impact, if that makes sense. Well, I wanted to start with the downhills, actually. And you use an interesting term. You said that normally I lean into the downhills. That doesn't make sense if you actually think about it. But, oh, it does, correct? Yeah. So tell them why that makes sense and what that means. And then I want to dissect the downhill run. Well, what it means is that you actually get your momentum moving forward. You, you, if you watch a novice, someone new to downhill running, or even if you go on a hike with some friends, you get to a steep section. The first thing they do is they lean backwards mm-hmm. and they plant their heels into the ground. 
which gives you control and it gives you a false sense of not having impact. But in reality, planting your heels into the ground, leaning back is about the most eccentric thing you can do to your body. Correct. With your muscles at their longest point while they take the impact, it's the most damaging type of impact you can take as a runner, in my opinion. Yeah. And I would argue that with the eccentric loading of the, let's say they lean back and shuffle versus the lean forward and let gravity do the work. Um, they both take impact, but I would argue in very different places too in the legs. When you do the shuffle approach, when you lean back and breaking effect really smashes the teardrops in the end of your quads. When you open up, now we're talking hips and we're hips, talking yeah. glutes a little bit and things and even upper where the hamstring insertion happens. So, um, so very different, actually, I would say biomechanical stress. Yeah. And what happens, well, this is just opinion here, but the shuffle scoot down ends up blowing up those quads a little bit more than actually a nice open gate. And then what happens? You have to go right back uphill. And now the end of those quads are smoked from the braking effect in the shuffle. And then they're not as effective going back uphill either. And I almost think it's like a double-edged catch-22 sort of sword um, with that approach. Yeah. And when you talk about the teardrops, that bottom of your quad, to me, that's always where I start to feel like my climbing starts. Correct. And so when you're damaging the down and using it on the up, like you said, uh, that's that compounding interest right there. But if you can shift the impact closer to your center mass, your hips, your glutes by leaning forward more... Yeah, you climb with your hips and glutes, but it's an area that just doesn't, when you're trained, it doesn't take damage and fatigue the same way that the distal points of your quads do. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. So, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that if you think about running on flat ground, you run straight up and down or with a slight forward lean. Correct. Why? Why are we told to do that? Well, we're told to do that because um, running essentially is controlled falling where our, this is my opinion again anyways, is that our feet are being put in front of us so we don't face plant. And a slight forward lean actually is helpful momentum wise. It, it almost pulls you forward. So we, we use gravity to our advantage. Mm -hmm. And a slight forward lean guarantees, not guarantees, but it makes it really difficult to overstride. Correct. And overstriding is actually in theory great. You, you make your stride longer, you cover more ground. The downside is that when it's done biomechanically, inefficiently, you're striking in front of your center mass, mm -hmm. which again means heel impacting ground coming down into it rather than cycling through it. So you're just, you're impacting in front of your body. You want your foot strike as close to under or slightly behind or slightly in front of your center mass as possible. You want to be under it if at all possible. So on the downhill, you shift the ground and it falls forward, in theory, you have to shift with it in order to keep the, the foot strike under your center mass, if at all possible. Well, yeah, if you just make a T with your arms, like make a T with your hand, and the up part of your fingers is your body running on flat ground, and your hand is, you know, your hand that's horizontal is the ground. It makes like a perpendicular 90 degrees. Now, if you just shift that to like the right or left, your body has to go along with that when you're running downhill quickly to make still, again, that approximate 90 degree angle. And most people end up leaning back into it and their, their tangents are completely off now and which is an inefficient way to run. So that's, I don't know if yeah. that made sense or not, but hopefully you're with me on that. And so, so that's where that leaning into it, the downhill comes into play, which is it's a, it's a conscious decision you have to make to lean into the hill and to attack it. If you're not attacking the hill, it's, 
they're the only like there isn't a middle ground. It's not like the flat ground where I can coast or just cruise. There's not. You're either accelerating the hill efficiently or you're leaning back and braking. Now there's a time and a place for a little bit of leaning back, like extremely steep or really technical or scree running. But even that becomes a really light on your feet, quick, 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 quick movement. But on runnable trails, the only way to actually be fast and avoid the most damage is to lean into it and run aggressively. But that takes practice because initially that really blows up your legs. Well, and it's fear. It's a fear-based thing. I mean, you know, cojones is the limiting factor for a lot of people. And that's understandable because um, you don't, if you don't have a lot of experience running fast downhill, it's scary as heck. But, um, but that's, that's also a big part of the equation. And the only way to get better at it is to practice at it. But the biggest thing I think is, you know, this athlete said, so you're supposed to take real small steps, right? Real quick, small feet, you know, and get down the hill. And I was like, yeah, no, actually that that's, you know, that's a lot of work and a little bit, you know, you're not getting a lot back from that. In fact, you might be harming yourself more. And and then I saw a picture of what the trail she was on and it was very technical and very rocky, Mm. very awesome. Right. So how do you decide? Is it like an intuitive thing? Right. Like, do you, or can you open it up on technical trails? I mean, the answer is yes, you can. I've seen people do it and I've done it, but like, how do you decide? What's safe and what's not safe? Well, first of all, that short, fast step. That If it's smooth, that's not what you do. If it's super, super technical, that's what you're forced to do because it's really hard to keep your eyes ahead of you on a downhill. Mm-hmm. And the longer your stride is, the more you have to be confident on your line. Part of the reason short choppy is so effective is because you don't have to be perfect. You can quick keep moving your feet around things where when you're bombing it, your foot has to hit the ground in a place where it can get off the ground safely. And so your long strides down technical is absolutely possible, but it has to be a really, really good, solid skill that you have and you're hitting the right line. So it's it's really, I don't like to say it's comfort level because it's very easy in a race or in training to say, I'm not comfortable doing this. Well, downhills are one of those things you have to be outside your comfort zone to improve. So it's less of a comfort level and it's more of what is your acumen What's your skill level? The better you are, the more you open up. If you watch Johnny Luna Lima run downhill, who has proved he's, I'd say, probably one of the 10 best downhillers in the world, regardless of sport. He proved it at the Golden Golden Trail Series. He has the longest stride downhill of anyone I've ever seen. And unbelievably huge. Just almost obnoxiously long boundy strides. But his skill level is so high that he can get away with it. I couldn't do that. I watched him from behind in Tahoe um, two years ago because I luckily I think he misses spear, but I was ahead of him until the first big descent and he caught me halfway down or so. But um, and that was windy. You know, the the first descent in Tahoe, you're in the ultra that year. It was windy and rocky. And we had snow on it on the second day. So you couldn't really see um, even in that stuff, which a lot of people would consider technical. Uh, I would have thought he was on a flat, like a flat groomed trail so there are levels to everything because he still didn't let that him let that affect him so it is possible i've seen it on that was the slowest descent of the day out of the two and he made it look like it was flat groom cement i think my my rule of thumb on downhill or my recommendation is to run with the longest stride you can safely manage i agree rather than start choppy and build up you you run as long as you can run now there have been races where i'm running where my strides feel like they're nine inches long yeah. 
because okay. you're, you're scree running, you're running on loose rock and, and gravel and sand and dirt you got mud and, and not yeah. good planting. Yeah. But the longer you can keep your stride, the better the downhiller you'll be. Mm-hmm. It, and that's, that's pretty much universal. If you watch, and I encourage people to watch uh, of any of the, the world championship or world sky running series races, the coverage is fantastic. And these people run downhill with long strides on things that you'd look at and say, that's dangerous to run down, but yep. they're so confident and they're so skilled that they get away with it. And we all want to be our best version of that. And that means practicing downhills with your best stride, your absolute best. So that on race day, you have the ability to run at 80% of that stride or hundred percent of it or 120 at the end of the race or 60%. Like I was kind of 70%, like I was doing lap one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like it. Simple as this, the longest stride you can get away with is probably the most efficient. Yeah. Simple as that. Because up on the flats, the longest stride you can do doesn't necessarily work. Nope. I agree. But downhill, because of gravity and the angle, if you're running with a long stride, you're attacking. And if you're attacking, you're doing it correctly. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I just want to say that that's very different from the advice you read online, which is take the shortest, choppiest steps you can and move quickly. That's all well and good. That is a safe way of getting down. Correct. But if we're talking racing for maximum time saving, and I would argue minimum impact, that's the way to do it. You will have less strides per downhill, which is less impacts, and you'll stay at contraction much, much less. When you're mm-hmm. chopping your steps, you're always contracted in your quads, always. So each stride might have a little less force into the ground, but when it hits in such a contracted state and you never let go of it, that builds up damage. Yep, I agree. Uh, there's two things I still want to talk about with um, downhill, and that is one, what to do with my arms. Okay. What do I do with my arms? And then two, how do you gauge your effort downhill? And this is something I actually really want to get into. Um, But let's do the, I think the quicker one first. What do I do with my arms? Because everybody wonders on that one. You'll see sometimes a Luna Lima in perfect running stride form going downhill with very little flail. You'll often see him with a big flail, the windmill approach, the what do you do with your arms? Question bracket. Uh, you've, You've been in a few races with me downhill. So yep. you can probably test the fact that my arms just go when I run steep downhill. They like to do their own thing and I let them do that. Our arms are used really for what? Three things when we move at all as humans. The first is balance. The second is rhythm and cadence. And then the third is to drive power. Mm-hmm. That's why we talked about going to your arms at the end of a race, which <laughs> did you watch Cole Hawker's? 1500 meter victory at NCAAs. Yes, I did. The guy just goes to his arms better than anyone else out there. Oh, he reaches, he pulls with his arms. I've never seen somebody pull with their arms as much as I've seen, which sounds almost contradictory. Yeah. He pulls with his arms. Again, you may not choose his stride if you could build it in a lab, but you can't debate the fact that when he sprints, he drives and generates power with his arms. Not not a side story, but we got to talk about it. The steeplechaser. You know who I'm talking about? The guy who was in third, passing second, attacking first, and fell over the last barrier, or the guy who had his uh, testicles fall out of his shorts? Well, here's the problem. Okay, this gentleman. (laughs) Which one are we talking about? We're talking about the testicle. Okay, Okay. so it was a great race, by the way. BYU is infamous for this. They pull their shorts up so high, and their shorts, they just need different shorts. Okay, but this is the problem. This gentleman is like 
on the thicker side of an endurance athlete. He's probably the huskiest in the field. We need to get back to topic, but I just have to talk about this. Are you pulling up a picture of him or something? No, David Megiddo was calling me. Oh, you can, um, the, yes, you ignored him. You're not there for him either. Anyways, and his shorts fit tighter because his thighs are just, he's got more mass on him. Mm-hmm. And halfway through the steeplechase in the NCAA champion semifinals, his testicle popped out and he had no idea. And so luckily there were guys in front of him most of the race. Not in the finals. Correct. Clear as day. Freaking dude, two days later goes to the finals and doesn't fix the problem. What happens? Bloop. Sucker pops out again. <laughs> I mean, two days in a row. Put on some briefs. Do something. This, this is why I stopped in college trusting the liner of running shorts. Ergonomically, they just work for some people and they don't for others. And then imagine jumping and spreading your leg over a hurdle. And landing in water. And landing in water. That's a recipe for disaster there. I mean, I don't know why every steeplechaser doesn't wear spandex shorts, compression shorts. I was watching him, and then we got to move on. I was watching him down the final straight kick. I think he took third. He had a great race, or maybe fourth. And I was like, please don't swing wide so everybody sees this at the finish. And he stayed tucked. On ESPN, you the last 200 meters, you could just see him. Luckily, it looked like the white liner of his shorts. It didn't look very white to me. <laughs> it, it just, <laughs> come on. In BYU, they have to take a two-year mission trip. So the guy's 24, 25 years old. You're old enough to know what it feels like when you're not inside of your shorts. You're not some little kid. You know how to address yourself as an adult. You got to fix that. The coach has to fix that. Happen in the semifinals and then not rectify the problem and it happens again in the finals. Anyways, I'm sure all of you probably paused this and are looking it up. Connor Mansat Nationals at cross country, it, it did similar. Their shorts are too... Their shorts aren't good enough to restrain them, and they all crank their shorts up so high. Hunter Man's the problem, though. Maybe. Still, they, 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 we're talking about a bunch of grown men who don't know how to wear running shorts correctly. That can't be the first or second time. It can't be the first two times this has happened to this dude. He just doesn't care if his testicles are hanging out on the national spotlight, and that's what it comes down to it. He crosses the finish line, doesn't fix it, and just puts his hands on his hips, starts high-fiving people. I'm like, your, your balls are hanging out. It's like a scene from the movie Jackass. Yes. It, I wonder if this isn't like their running joke on their team. Like, hey, man, see if you can pop it out on, on ESPN this weekend. Maybe it is. He had no shame. I'll tell you that. So anyways, this all started with you asking about Cole Hawker. So, Oh, yeah. Arms. Okay. So arms do three things for runners, essentially. Balance, cadence and rhythm, mm-hmm. and drive power. Downhill. The downhill drives your power. You basically right. have to keep up with the downhill. and your legs do it by cycling over, but you don't have to be as powerful downhill. You have to keep moving. Yep. Uh, cadence and rhythm. The hill kind of does that for you too. If you lean into the hill, your your steps per minute just skyrockets. You don't have to worry about it. So it really comes down to balance. Correct. So the tamer the terrain, the more I try to run my flat ground stride. If the longer you can keep your flat ground stride, the faster and more powerful you are. And you mean with the arms? The longer you can keep your in quote, stride with the arms. Yep. The more efficient, right? Yeah. But the steeper it gets, the less you need to drive power and the more you need to not break and the more you need to stay upright. And so it really just is about balance and, and really rhythm more than anything. And your arms can do that windmilling just as well as they can do it at your, at, at that, you know, back pocket to front pocket cadence. So I'm not worried about arms. 
until I see them just out on the sides, not moving because that means braking. I feel like airplaning, so to speak. Yeah. When you're, you're almost like putting your palms up facing forward and that's the international I'm terrified of this hill stance. They need to be moving back and forth to some extent, but there needs to be no pattern to them. Yeah. That's I my think, take. nope. I think keeping your normal like front to back pocket run arm motion, um, on clean or, um, like slight grades. Absolutely. But as soon as you get steep, I'm just going to say, if you are thinking about your arms, you're probably doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. There should be no thought. It should be, they should be moving intuitively and instinctively like a cat's tail does when it's bounding from thing to thing in the environment. That tail is doing what a tail does. It's there for balance, right? Your arms are doing the same exact thing. So like, if you're thinking about it, you're not doing it right. That's my, probably not doing it right. Correct. Because it should be a non-thought. It should be an automated bodily response reacting to what the rest of your body is doing. There was a study they did on how much power arms drive in normal and high-end threshold running. Oh, I'm sure it's very minimal. And up until, I want to say up until lactate threshold, people lost 3 to 6% efficiency with their arms tied behind their backs running. That's, I mean, a lot, but not a lot at the same time. That's about as much as people gain efficiency-wise from super shoes. Okay. So when you think about it, you could run without super shoes just fine. You could probably teach yourself to run without your arms just fine. Until you have to really drive power, which is, again, above lactate threshold, you don't really need to generate too much from your arms. They're there for, you got to do something with them because they're on your body. And they're there for balance and rhythm. So yep. downhill is the same thing. You don't have to drive power like you normally would. So it's balance and rhythm. Yep. Okay. I feel like I, we covered, covered that well. Yeah. Uh, the, the one thing I would say about arms is that they got to keep them loose downhill. Keep Downhills loose. are scary. And what we do when we're scared or nervous is we tense up. And yep. tense downhill does not impact you the same way as loose, relaxed downhill does. And it's really hard to breathe when you're flexing. Yep. And breathing becomes an issue when people are bombing downhills. They get to the bottom and they're blown up and you shouldn't be. You can recover on a downhill, but you have to keep breathing. And so you have to keep your arms relaxed. Yeah. Well, I guess the last thing then, if we're talking like, I said some blanket blanket statement, maybe five, 10 minutes ago about, well, if you're scared, you just got to get on them and you got to keep doing it and keep doing it. Right. But is that, is that a little cheap to say, is there, are we missing anything with that? Like, no, you actually have to go and run scared once or twice and wear your crash pads and run downhill with a bike helmet on just in case and like get yourself comfortable. Is there like something to that where like you actually have to go beyond your comfort zone or do you, is it a slow acclimation? Like I'll be a little more aggressive today and a little more aggressive today. I think that you have to change your mindset immediately. So I think you go immediately outside your comfort zone, but you can mitigate that danger zone by, by shortening the duration. And Mm -hmm. I did this. I I spent when I started writing that no downhill left behind workout back in the leaderboard days. That was the Mm -hmm. winter I decided all my speed works coming from downhills this winter. I'm going to just become a better downhill runner. And I did downhill intervals and I started with 10 second intervals at Alpine Valley. I started 10 seconds from the bottom of the hill and I would run those 10 second intervals at my best absolute downhill stride. And they would flatten out after 10 seconds and I would decelerate and I'd turn and I'd walk back up the hill. Mm. And then I, I extended it up to 15 and then 20. And by the end of the year, I was doing the full 450 meter downhill loop through that, you know, which was taken 
you've been out there 58, yep. 60 seconds. It's you're flying down it. But initially you get to that point where I can't hold this anymore. And it's either really destructive to stay at that or you have to start breaking and that hurts too. So I just start towards the bottom of the hill and you graduate up the hill with okay. actual interval work. But you have to keep that mindset of I'm attacking it and doing it right. Because if you say I'm going to just get a little more aggressive as I go, you're relying on your mind to act accordingly and hold you accountable. Mm-hmm. Or if you just program short reps that get longer over time, you don't have to have a say in the matter. You just do the workout. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I'm, you think I might've been joking with this bike helmet comment, but if you're really one of those scaredy cats, you put on your rollerblade, knee pads, elbow pads, put some leather biking gloves on and, and a bike helmet, and you go rip that shit up bulletproof. <laughs> you do, If that's what it takes for you to run with some cojones down the hill for the first time, like strap that stuff on your body and go. I'm and not film doing- it. Film it and take us. <laughs> yeah, because that would be amazing. Um, okay, I want to move to the effort component. And here's where Yes. Here's where I think most people go wrong, actually, above everything else, is the nature of uphills is or downhills is usually it's it's preceded by an uphill, right? And we crest the uphill and our heart rate's sky high and we're we're just hanging on for dear life, maybe come off of a power hiking, <clears throat> and then you crest and you go down. And what happens the first, oh, minute or three minutes of every downhill is everybody uses that as a chance to gather themselves. Not everybody, but 95% of people uses it to gather themselves. They allow it. The problem with that is, is that your heart rate, unless again, you can pin it as Johnny Luna Lima says he can, your, no matter how much you lean into the hill, no matter how aggressive you get with the hill, I've learned this over time, your heart rate will come down regardless as the nature of the descent. Maybe it'd be, you'll be a little uncomfortable for a little longer, but you're still going to find your groove. And so don't lay off the throttle. In fact, I would surge once you're to the top of the hill and you're going to have a real uncomfortable 30 seconds to three minutes. But what happens is you end up settling in and you're 30 seconds ahead of where you would have been because you took it easy and you're no worse or better off for the effort it took to just get right into an aggressive downhill. Your body does come back around. So like that's just like, my one first take as far as effort goes is cresting and surging. Even when you feel you have nothing in you, I'm telling you that your body will catch up with itself once you start going downhill, like on most every type of terrain. Yeah. This is one of those situations where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in a race. If you come in with a lot of downhill capital in your bank account, you don't burn through it as quick as if you don't have much in there. When you have spent the time running downhill workouts, you can run faster, more aggressively with less damage and effort than if you have not done the work and you're breaking and going slower. It still pounds you and you lose ground. Yep. It's just, it's an unfair thing, but it's trainable. And unlike real money where you can work really hard and you're not, you're not guaranteed at success. Mm-hmm. If you work your downhills, you get good at them. Mm-hmm. Like you're, It's a one-to-one. You put the time in, you get that back on race day. You have it. And so you just have to do that. Because you have to be able to draw on your training in order to confidently attack a downhill when you're really tired from the uphill. Well, I'll tell you what. um, I went back and looked at the data from my ultra. That was, what, a month ago now, I think, uh, close to it. Anyways, and I miscalculated. These climbs are like 400 feet apiece, about some three or four, 400, maybe five, 400 footers. Anyways, and so my heart rate would get up to 180 on the climbs, especially in the back half, and I would embrace the top, and we'd go right back down again. 
And yes, they were technical, so it required a little bit of shuffling and there was some mud, but every single time I leaned into that and I ran aggressively and my heart rate almost always got back down into the 150s, which is with what I would consider maximum aggressive approach to the downhill. So I went from 180 all the way down to below 160 and sunk my teeth into it. And I didn't back off initially to let myself catch my breath. I went into it. My body still did that. And that was with saying I could be as aggressive as I possibly could have given the terrain. So what would have happened if I didn't do that? I would have lost 30 seconds on the top of that descent, catching my breath in quotes, but my breath was going to come around anyways. And so I, I looked at the data and it almost rung true on every single descent. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind, like play around with that when you are cresting and then descending and you'll be surprised how well your body comes back around and handles it. Yeah. And if, and if you can't trust that, look at it. And from a pure number standpoint, Kirk, you probably beat the next fastest person by 10 minutes on hills alone. Probably. So you spent 10 minutes less taking a pounding than they did. You're saying that 10 minutes less on downhill. Yeah. On the downhills, you probably beat them by 10 minutes over the course of what? Four hours of racing. Yep, I, I, would, I'm, I would guess. Yeah. So even though you were more aggressive, you spent 10 less minutes on the hill itself under contraction and impact. So even if each stride cost you a little bit more, you took 10 minutes less strides than they did. Yeah. That's the rich get richer, poor get poor yeah. uh, philosophy again. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone gets to the bottom with your heart rate back in order. Well, under it's typically not on the downhill. It's not metabolic problems that you're in cardiovascular and lactate overload. You're creating yourself on the downhills most of the time, unless it's like a five, 10% grade fire road, then it's a different right. story, but it's the eccentric. It's the muscle damage that the downhill is causing you. That's making you have a hard time running back up again. It's not, it's not your cardiovascular strain. It's physical damage. That's what people I think misconstrued sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So then that leads into, well, how hard do I run it? What's my effort level? And there's only one way to answer that, I think. And that is you have to spend a lot of time running downhills. Because if I told you in the middle of a, let's say a, a 10 mile race, you're on the flats and I asked you our question, you know, which is, can you keep this the entire time? You're going to have an answer for me. It's either going to be yes, no, or maybe. If you're on the downhill, and you haven't run downhills. And I said, can you keep this downhill effort the entire race? And you say, I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And you can't answer that on race day and expect to do your best. You have to answer that in training prior, which means you have to program big downhill days. The great thing about downhills is you don't have to do them that often. You yep. probably have to do those less than any other type of workout known to a runner in order to keep at that 90% of your maximum ability at them. Yeah. It's the Dr. Fred Clary approach with strength training. You go big once every 14 to 21 days yeah. and create some real, real big damage. And then that lasts you another 14 to 21 days of non loss of fitness or ability to take impact, sprinkle a little in, in the middle, and you're going to, you're going to benefit from that. Yeah. It's not a, something you need to do twice a week, especially once you establish some sort of base downhill fitness over time. Yeah. The studies have shown that you can do a workout, a downhill workout every 20 days. If you do an initial block of downhill training, like I talked about for, let's say three to six weeks of downhill emphasis, you only have to touch upon it once every 20 days after that. And for almost an entire year, you can keep up to 90% of the benefits of those first three to six weeks. Isn't that crazy? 
Eccentric impact is a wild thing in your body that drives massive, massive overhaul and positive change in your body. That same principle, that like 20 day principle with a taper, with your last true long runner hard effort before an event, that 20 day principle, people get like a little over worried about losing fitness. And that yeah. applies almost across the board, um, which just seems like a long time, but it's our bodies physiologically hold on to with very small sprinkles of uh, stimulus after that, hold on to almost 100% of what you've earned previously. Yeah. Which is wild. Um, we should move to uphills looking at the time. Downhills is going to take significantly the most amount of time. Yes. Now we talk about the uphills. Let's go back to your race. Your approach was let the hills win. Yeah, because I didn't have the fitness to absorb 16 miles of up and down, I had to let the hills win on the first half. Mm -hmm. If hills going down, going downhill, if you miss by a little bit, you correct it on the next one. On the flats, if you miss by a little bit effort-wise, it tells you right away and you can adjust it on the uphills. You can miss by a little bit and you don't know it until it's too late. It, it just, it's, it's so abrupt when your uphill legs go and they're gone. So uphill pacing is probably the most difficult and most important effort to manage for a trail runner. I I'll tell you what on prescribed workouts, I see exponentially more positive splits on hill workouts than any other workout that you will ever prescribe. And even the best hill repeat people, the best hill runners still sometimes get it wrong when they think they know their body. The heat's 10 degrees warmer and they still think they're keeping the governor on. But when it goes, it goes. It's why you see in a marathon, winning a marathon by 30 seconds is a great margin, a flat road marathon. But when you look at mountain races with undulation, winning a, winning a, it, a three minute margin is a great margin in mountain racing because once it goes, the gaps are created and, and that's the difference there. What happened in our big workout you and I did when we got together about uh, two months ago, we did a hill workout. Mm -hmm. Rep one, I ran, you led on the downhill and you were, you were gentle to me down that half mile long, 10, 15% descent. We isn't, that great, isn't that a great descent by the way? Oh, that's my least favorite grade. I can't yeah, but stand it's it. So much impact and so yes. much pounding. And anyways, keep yeah, going. yeah, that's the one you do once every twenty days, and you're an awesome downhill runner. But you were, we ran fast but under control, and then we turn around and we ran hard back up, hard down, and finished. And on the second rep, I took the lead because I realized I'm going to bury myself on this one because it's my last one. This is my yep. big effort. I'm going to hit it hard, and I led down the hill and I ran really aggressively down the hill. Mm -hmm. And then I turned around and ran just the exact same level of aggression back up the hill. And then I really switched to go into my arms and started driving at the top of the hill. And we got done and I would have thought that we would have been a minute faster that round. And we were what, 25 seconds slower? We were like 21 seconds slower on rep two. Yep. Despite being significantly quicker down and on the flats, I crested each of them and ran harder that lap. But because my level of fatigue destroyed my uphills, you just bleed time. Bleed, bleed time. I was faster everywhere else, but the fatigue, you can't fake it up the hill. And I so I lost a minute on the hill and probably gained back. 25, 30 seconds on the flats and the downhills. And those flats and downhills were totally canceled out by the uphill. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I would say with, with the uphill running, um, it's almost like you got to apply what I would call like the governor principle. And that is you, let's just say it's a short, let's say it's one of those races with a bunch of short climbs like you had, 
shortened quotes, no more than a hundred or 200 feet at a time, I assume was your race. Even less. Yeah. Even less. Um, it, you, you have to approach it as if like the hill is twice as long or the, you know, like gauging that effort. Like once you blow up, it's, it's going to be so catastrophic to what your body's able to put out that it's not worth it. And you can always save it for the back end of your race. If for some reason you're lucky enough to still be feeling good while climbing. And if you're talking on those long climbs, it's like you start and you think I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable. You're wrong. Like 95% of the time. And it's backing off even one more, one more notch. So it's, it's like you, if you're climbing correctly, you should be halfway through that climb and still feel like you could go faster. If you're halfway through that climb and you're already hanging on for dear life, you will bleed time the rest of that climb, whether it's a hundred foot climb or it's a 3000 foot climb, you should still halfway up it be thinking if I had to move faster, I could. Yes. That's the right effort. It's a, you still have a choice to be made. And, and that's the biggest key. And that's actually seems like, oh, I'm going soft on it. I'm going too easy. No, you're not. Actually, you're gauging your effort appropriately because in literally 50 yards, you can go from being in control to over rev limiter and bleeding time. It can happen that quickly. That's exactly it. The, you're, what you said is right. The decision. You should be doing that pace because you choose to. Yep. Not because that's all you can do. The first half of any big hilly race you should be choosing your pace you're running uphill at. You don't want to be reduced to this is what I have left until the second half of a race. Mm-mm. And even then, you don't even want to hit that until the last climb or two. It should always be, I have the option to go faster, but I'm gonna I'm gonna sit here. And if I need to later on, I can use it. Because hills are just like you can lose a ton of time, you can gain a ton of time on a hill. Totally. If you get to the second half of a course and you're like, man, my legs are just ready to roll. You can make up a minutes on one climb. Minutes. People minutes. bleed out. And if you're not, you're set. Everyone can run up the first climb at any major championship because it's not outrageous. It's just you make the choice to go with the leaders or not because you know you have to do it again and again and again. And hills compound, uphills compound more than anything else on this in, in the mm-hmm. sport of running. Well, it's like everybody wants to play hero all the time and you see it happen at every race. People going out of the gates, like any race with true elevation is not won on the first climb or the first or the first few climbs. Never. It's never, never. I shouldn't say never. Mostly not won on that first climb. Killian's pulled it off a few times. Killian Jornet and Robert Killian, really. But um, so like, don't play hero. This is the time to not play hero. You can take all the glory of the second half of the race when you win. Yes. Don't worry about it because it's like it, the the risk is not does not outweigh the reward when it's going when it's called you know when it comes to going uphill. So without question, it's funny when when I ran that uh, trail fifty k with Tyler Siegel and we stayed together through I don't know eight miles whatever it was nine. Mm-hmm. We were running up the first climb, the very first climb is about four hundred and forty feet over the course of a mile, and there are two sections where it kicks up pr- relatively steep but very runnable. And we got to it and I said, this is the part that gets me. He goes, I know. I just, I have to just tell myself, just hike this right now. I know I can run up this, but what am I going to be thinking 25 miles from now? Yep. Is it, and it's, and, and he said, I, I just feel foolish, but I just force myself. I know you can run it, but hike this section right now. Because it, what, what is running it versus hiking it going to gain us right now? Five seconds, 10 seconds. Yeah. Maybe if it's a longer section, 20 seconds. Yep. But in that last mile... I was two and a half minutes slower going up it than I was the first time. 
Isn't that crazy? Two and a half minutes. So in the moment you're thinking, I need to be racing. But the longer the races, the more you have to convince yourself, you're not allowed to race the hills yet. You can go race the downhills. You can even to some extent race the flats, but you're not allowed to race the hills until you're ready to bring it home. 100%. Yep. That's a great point. Two and a half minutes in mile 28 to 29, I lost compared to the first time I, we ran the same, same climb, two and a half minutes. And lap one, I felt foolish hiking next to this guy who was, I think, top five at USA 50K champs the year prior. Mm-hmm. He hiked. I'm like, ah, oh, I would have run this if it were an OCR race. <laughs> mm-hmm. Twenty mile twenty eight comes along. You know, twenty five miles later, I lead. I, I leave two and a half minutes on the course. Yeah, prime example right there. And that was, and you, and you were being smart the first time. Imagine if you weren't. Yeah, could have been <laughs> three and a half minutes. Could yeah, I think if I was aggressive there, I might have walked that hill. I ran every step of it mile 28 to 29 and lost two and a half minutes. And you were still slower. Well, case in point right there. When you're on the flats and you break, you can keep running, but a slower speed. Yep. You see it in the on the track at NCAAs right now. People get passed as they go into the final kick, but they're still running fast paced behind them. They're just not accelerating anymore. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen uphill. When you break, you don't settle to like one notch slower. You settle to five notches slower. Because yeah. there's no power left to fight going up that hill. Moral of the story, error on the side of caution when going uphill. Even the best of the athletes, they know their bodies very well, but they they think that too. It's a, it's a hold back, just like you said, Tyler Siegel, one of the best ultra trail runners uh, in the U.S., holding back, practicing self-restraint. Will I, I'd be curious how he uh, hit that, that last climb compared to his first one. We can look on Strava. We should. Um, okay, and then we got to talk about stride. Yes. In arms. Stride in arms. Kate, here's the thing as well with stride. Um, you see novices, and I'm going to put myself in that category early in my OCR career. These big, powerful strides, like these big, like you got to cover as much ground with every stride because that's fast and efficient, efficient in very heavy air quotes. Like emulate this like flat ground stride is big. So I'm going to open it up and be powerful and drive every step. That's a recipe to go anaerobic as quickly as you ever could and ruin the rest of your climb. You hit like a little boulder field, let's say in a race where you have or stairs and you have to take bigger steps than you want to. You do that 10 strides in a row and your legs are gone, right? So this is the time where like short is efficient. Yep. And if you're running, that is power hiking is a different case. Power hiking, then you want to get big open strides, but running, it's not the time. It's going to, that whole, you pay for it five times. Like compared to flat running, you pay for it a little bit. If you overstride, you're paying for like it 10 times and then you're just gone. So um, shorten your stride and be okay with that is the point I'm making on that. It's just like that is the time to throw that graceful, beautiful, I'm just shuffling. Good. I'm glad you're shuffling. Yes. That's exactly what you should be doing. You want to keep, in my opinion, you want to keep your flat ground posture as long into the hill as you can. You don't want to lean into the hill too much. You want to keep your posture upright, keep your lungs open. You are going to need that. You want to keep your posture as long as possible until you shift to your true uphill climbing form. But the biggest one to keep is your cadence. Mm -hmm. If you want to keep your stride length, you're in trouble. You keep your cadence high and you let that that stride shrink closer and closer and closer in order to keep those wheels turning uphill. Can you keep it exactly the same cadence? Probably not. Probably not. Sometimes it's quicker for me. But you want to keep it as high as possible 
at total expense of stride length. There's really only one good uphill runner I know who uses a long plodding stride versus short and quick, and that is Robert Killian. It is Robert Killian. Yep. And I've never understood it, but there's always exceptions to every rule, and he must be that exception. Yeah, you look at a lot of the best, like the women climbers, look at Nicole Miracle, Lindsay Webster, Rhea Coble. They all have what you call the shuffle stride going. Just little hill. pistons do, 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 over and over. And each stride is way less costly. And then the problem too, when you run and you start getting that forward lean, which I am guilty of as anybody. I, we talk about forward lean, you talk about me. Lean's okay, but not changing your whole posture. But when you disengage, what happens when you forward lean too much is then your rear chain really starts going on you. Your erector spinae and your lower back in particular, your glutes in the back of your hamstrings start burning like a constant tension. And what can that, that, that can force you to just crumble. You ever climb and descend and then get on the flats and you feel like you can't run at all? Well, that's kind of normal, but like you want to make that seem even worse is blow up your rear chain by too much of a forward lean. And so you got to keep like, you get that lower back burn when you run uphill. A lot of people get that lower back to get tight on them. You're probably leaning too far forward and you need to get real upright and shorten your stride. I notice when I'm running uphill with aggression and I'm taking these big strides and I tend and I start leaning forward with fatigue, my lower back will start going on me. And that's a sign that I'm not staying upright and I'm not, I'm not taking those small choppy steps. So that's something to think of too, especially those uphill runners whose lower backs get tight on them. I guarantee you that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. When you're running uphill, as much as you're pushing off the ground, you're pushing down into the ground with your, with your top leg. So the leg that strides up into the hill, you want to somewhat be on top of that leg. So all you have to do is push down into the ground, push down from your hips, through your glutes, through your quads, right into the ground and push off the ground. When you overstride forward, you don't have to worry about the heel impact, that eccentric impact of a flat or a downhill, but now your leg's in front of you. And the only way to get your body up is to pull. So everything has to contract that rear chain, your hamstrings have to, your the top, the insertion, insertion point under your glute all the way down to behind your knee. It all contracts and squeezes to pull you up the hill rather than just use your big movers, your glutes and your quad to power down to propel you forward. Mm-hmm. And it's a massive difference. You're recruiting so much more muscle fiber that you don't normally use when you're running. Yep. When you're running flat, you're not recruiting all the way up that rear chain. Those those get to stay until the end of the race, until you're ready to start really accelerating. That's the first time you engage a lot of those. Yeah, well, they're engaged, but at a very low level comparatively. Yeah, they're not driving the force of your of your stride. If on the first climb you're overstriding and you're engaging those early, you're doing to your body what usually the end of the race does to your body. Except now you have to get through the rest of the race, and suddenly you're it's almost like your backup system's been exhausted. And now you get to the point where the front system's tired. There's nothing to fall back on. And that's where a lot of cramping comes is muscle fibers are exhausted early because they've been forced to start pulling you up the hill rather than just using your main sets to drive up the hill. Yeah. And I will say though, that uphill running is the time to go to the arms. If there is ever a time to go to, you talk downhill, you're not driving much force with the arms and on flat ground, Percentage wise, it's whatever you said, how many percent of whatever force is being three to six percent. Three to six. Uphill, I will argue with you on. I, I have to imagine if a study were done, it's going to be different. Oh, yeah. For me, I oh, find yeah. that actually going to your arms uh, can be very beneficial. So uh, when I said if you're thinking about your arms while you're going downhill, you're doing something wrong, I stand by that. I think going uphill is a time to actually think about your arms and remind yourself 
that those are important because every upswing is a little bit of upward momentum and and so inertia we'll call it and so that's the time you should be thinking about your arms going uphill it's not a one-to-one correlation but think about uh trekking poles mm-hmm. would they help you on the flats trying to run fast no would they help you downhill trying to run fast certainly not would they help you uphill yes and that's leverage and that's yeah but there is a bit of a correlation there that arms driving uphill help you much more than they would help on the flats or at moderate uh, moderate paces on the flats or any pace downhill. Anything you can generate going uphill that doesn't involve your main leg muscle groups having to pick up extra slack is absolutely worth it. That's why power hikers go to their hands on their knees. It's not because they're tired or lazy. It's because they're doing extra pushing off bone on bone rather than making their legs do all the work. Their muscle. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So arms, think arms. And then we should talk about power hiking real quick. We talk about upright, short, choppy steps. Um, when you go to power hiking, now it's the time to cover as much ground as you can as possible, I believe, with each stride. And like you said, bone on bone, using your your own body as like a hinge or a lever, leaning into your quads and your legs and pushing off, sort of carrying your upper body. Um, very, very important on that one. And then when you push off of your legs, you're also alleviating your rear chain from holding you in that position. Instead, you're forcing your your arm, shoulders, and core to do that work. So um, that's the time then when we want to lean into it. We want to push off our thighs and, and leaning forward is okay. But now we think big strides to cover as much distance as possible per uh, stride. Yeah. And power hiking is one of those things that if you're going to use it, you might as well practice it. Yep. Because like anything else we do, we just develop our own best version of that after you've practiced it a lot. And power hiking is the same way. There are many different styles of power hikers. You have a Ryan Atkins where he's really bent over deep in his stride and way over his knees, taking long strides. And his diaphragm doesn't seem impeded by that. And his hamstrings don't seem like he, he doesn't blow up his rear chain by that. I'm the opposite. I'm a pretty upright power hiker. Yeah, you are. I blow up my rear chain when I bend over pretty far and it impedes my diaphragm. My breathing just kind of just goes off the charts if I power hike bent over. So I'm I'm a much more vertical power hiker. And I found that a lot of people like to push down closer to their knees. So they're they're not pushing down on their quad and impeding blood flow. Because I'm upright, I push more middle of my thigh when I power hike. So mm-hmm. it's not even necessarily the the stride that I would recommend, but it's the stride I found over years of power hiking. So you got to play around with it and find your best version. Yeah. Practice your craft there. That's one of those they're putting time in. Yeah. A lot of people don't practice the power hike in training and then they get to racing and they're in the power hike half of the climbs and, and they're not, I mean, you should naturally fall into what is efficient for you, but not everybody does practice it. So I think bouts of practicing that are helpful. I went, when I was over in Spain visiting my sister, when she was playing basketball over there, her coach was a avid mountain runner. And he asked me to go if I wanted to run with him in the, in the Pyrenees. I said, yup. So he took me out on this trail and he switched to power hiking every single time it kicked up. And I was doing my short choppy running and he was just matching me on all of it. But you could see that this is someone who practices it every single day. And he just looked so efficient at what he did. When I switched to it, I felt, I felt cumbersome and lumbering next to him because his running and his power hiking just really smoothly blended together. There wasn't this huge visual difference because he just kept turning over and turning over no matter what he was doing. Right. And I thought I would, I would beat you in a race right now if we were racing this mountain, 
But if we were racing for six or eight hours, I think you would beat me. Yep. Because he goes to it so often, he didn't have the ability to run up the stuff I would run up. But I wouldn't have the ability to just casually click off hour after hour power hiking like he could. It's a good sign of a good power hiker when you're, let's say you're running behind somebody who does it. And that transition from the run to the power hike, it's like their legs didn't really change what they were doing. It's like what their upper body changed what they were doing was they leaned into it. It's a, it's a good sign of a power hiker. It's almost seamless. For sure. Which yeah. I know I do not have. Yeah, I don't think I have that either. Um, anything else of the uphills you want to talk about before we go to flats, which will be the shortest one of this all? But I think that uphill breathing is psychologically damaging. Because it's so heavy. Yeah, and you're not slapping the ground, so there's not as much noise happening. And it just feels like you're all you can hear is your own gasping. And you're going so slow, you feel like yeah. morally demoralized or demoralizing. I think that reason right there, that alone is reason enough to do lots of hill workouts because I think it, I think it really damages people to hear their own exertion sometimes when they're not used to that or not expecting it. When you're hurting and it sounds like you're hurting, it almost hurts you more unless you can laugh at and say, yep, that's me. I'm just the freight train when I go up hills and I understand that. So it's psychologically damaging to some people to hear how bad they sound up a hill. And that's kind of just the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, actually. Just you and your breath and you're moving at like two miles an hour, feeling like a pathetic POS, yeah. yet you're gasping for air and it doesn't shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, acknowledging that is helpful, just knowing that that's how it actually is for yeah. everybody. No matter how good you are, you listen to like, even listen to like an Atkins running up a hill and you can you can hear him from 100 yards down the hill. You know, he's, he's in it. It's not demoralizing him. Yeah, he's, he spent his his years of his life going uphill. He knows exactly how he should sound. Yeah, yeah. And it's normal. It's normal to be sucking wind and gasping and trying to get the air to the bottom of your lungs and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we go to flats? Let's go to flats. Yeah, what about flats? It's kind of the marriage of the two. You want to worry about your turnover. You want to worry about your arms a little bit, but you want to be free and easy with everything you're doing. What do you mean by free and easy? Fighting for speed is one of the, the the early signs of a new runner or someone who hasn't mastered their craft is when you fight for speed. The best runners relax into their speed and it's a very difficult skill to learn, but smooth is fast. Trying hard costs energy. Mm-hmm. Running fast is fast. And it is one of the only things our college coach imparted on me is that we're not running hard, we're running fast. And there's a difference. At, hopefully there's a difference there. Huge difference. And it's one of those, you don't know it until you feel it for the first time. And mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons I like treadmill work for newer runners sometimes is because you're going to move your pace no matter what you're doing with your tension in your body. But you can start playing around with levels of tension and see, what can I get away with? Kind of like we said, what's the longest I can stride on the downhill while being safe? what's the closest to a sleep I can be on the flats while still being fast? Like what level of tension can I reduce myself down to? That's to me, the entire key to running fast is tension. Explain that a little more. Tension. Tension, meaning tightness, clenching muscles, pushing hard. Everything you do burns energy in your body. And when you are racing or just training, every single little bit of energy is incredibly valuable. Think of what you would give in the middle of a race for just a little bit more energy. Ton. Like the market is <laughs> is thirsty at that point. And you can have more available if you burn through less. 
And one way to burn through less is to carry no tension anywhere in your body. And so the challenge becomes, how do I move my limbs quickly without forcing them quickly by letting them go easy and quick? And that is, uh, it's a matter of, of time spent trying to look like you're asleep when you're running and doing mm -hmm. it at fast paces. And it took me four years of college to get it right. Yeah. Well, it all comes down to one word and that's efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you feel like you're fighting for your stride or fighting to hit a pace and you're early on in a rep or a race, um, you're not going to last very long at, at that effort. And, and I think it comes just like the uphill running. Uh, the flat running comes down to knowing your, your body, I believe. Um, comes down to knowing your body. And then um, I would say like the classic mistake and I don't I still go back and forth on how we talk about cadence and 180 strides per minute and all that um but uh it's the understride and the and the the breaking effect that most people end up having and so typically as a blanket statement if you just increase your stride frequency and decrease your stride length um, you'll be more efficient over at least longer distances and it's less costly so um, the overstriding, I mean, I even, I don't have like a long flowing, beautiful stride or anything and my cadence still needs work. And you have these people who, you know, you ever run down the road and let's say, um, you're with somebody who's a non-runner or a novice and they're driving with you and they see somebody running down the street and be like, look at that runner, their beautiful long stride. And I look at it and go, that's terribly inefficient. Mm. If you look at that and say, that's beautiful. I was like, but you really don't know. I don't believe that's actually what that person should be doing. And so um, I just fi I find that trap to happen more often than any others. I think there's a trap with interval work. Now, interval work, in my opinion, is the single most effective way to get better as a runner. The human body responds to intervals, to bouts of work and bouts of rest really, really well. It's a great way to stimulate growth. However, with interval work, the, the, the trap there is to run this unsustainable stride. Yeah. You run a version of a stride that you can't actually keep the entire time rather than running a pace you can't necessarily keep the other time, the rest of the time, but with a stride that you always have. So a couple episodes ago, I talked about choosing an ultra shoe. Mm -hmm. I talked about choosing the shoe that will support you in the last mile, not the shoe that makes you feel fast in the first mile, the shoe that you can continue to run your best stride on at the end of the race. That's how I feel about strides too, that you should practice the stride that you're going to be using in the second half of the race. Not mm -hmm. that extra bouncy, extra springy, extra long, arms really jostling first half of the race. The sooner you can settle into your forever stride, the more you're going to actually reap the benefits of your workout. Otherwise, you're practicing things that you don't actually get to use. And I'm a huge <laughs> um, culprit of this. You know very well that when I fatigue, my form changes. Mm -hmm. And, and when you watch, I mean, watching NCAAs recently, it's, it's been really telling that the best people there, they look the same on the second to last lap as they did on their first lap. No. Their form only really changes when they start to drive for home. And it's really telling to look at the front of a pack and the back of the pack because the front of the pack looks like they're running slower than the back. The back are running very aggressively and they're getting dropped and the front of the pack look like they're jogging. I noticed that. I'm going to say a dozen times watching the NCAAs. It's like everybody was using their upper, upper body and arms in the back of the pack so much and their leg turnover looks so fast. And if you just individualize each athlete, 
Yeah. It was like the people in the front were running the slowest and the people in the back were running the fastest. It all had to do with what your coach had told you back in college. Which was relaxed speed is the fastest speed. Yep. It's amazing to watch the chase group and think they're running so fast. And you look ahead and realizing they're getting pulled away by people who look like they haven't even woken up yet. Yeah. And yep. that's that's the feeling you need to have on all of your work. I'm using the stride that I can use all day in the race. And I'm turning it over at the speed that I want to be able to use rather than I'm going to use the best stride I could ever imagine, but it's going to crumble after the third rep. You want sustainability in your stride. And what, what workouts for that, you know, how would you achieve that? And that would be through our tempo work and yeah. our threshold work, longer intervals, maybe mile repeats and up like five minutes plus, I would say maybe three minutes and more, but like anything longer is going to have you revert to your efficient sort of now I'm tired stride. And so that's just making sure that stuff is in. Cause if all you're doing is sitting there and doing 200, 400, maybe even 800 meter repeats, that stride a lot of times is a liar to what your stride's really going to be reduced yeah. to in a longer race. And so that alone, I mean, threshold work and tempo work and all of that is important for like metabolic reasons, of course. But I would argue that what your point is with the stride and, and such, it might be a very valuable tool in that regard as well. Just getting to your race, true racing settled in stride. And that way you can learn to run fast yet relaxed because you're familiar with working hard with that current stride. So that's important. It really is. And, and nothing replaces a mirror for that. When I want to focus on that, I get back on the treadmill and I watch myself and yeah. I make sure that I don't look like a hero on the first rep because otherwise I'm going to look like a shell of myself. When I do the, the treadmill challenge, 15-15 on the treadmill, my form changes drastically throughout the test. Mm -hmm. And the treadmill doesn't change speed, really. The incline stays the same. And somehow I am bouncier at the beginning and I am plodding at the end at the same pace. And that means that neither of those strides are my ideal stride. It's the one in the middle. We're in the right. middle of the test when I'm clicking, but I'm not doing any extra bounce and I'm not doing extra any extra jazz in my stride but I haven't sunk down into that slumpy stride yet. That middle stride is the one I need to stay at when I do my rep work. And that's tough to do. Yep. The other thing that I've, I've said in the past once or twice, and it really seemed to resonate with people, which I didn't expect, but um, is this is a college sort of lesson I learned. And that is, although yes, running is a forward lean and we let gravity, it's a controlled fall. So gravity is doing the work. Um, we tend to overdo it. A lot of runners, when they get tired, especially tend to overdo it, over lean, right? And so running tall, and I use an, uh, like a string coming out of your chest, like your, like your clavicle, and a string is pulling you up into like something in the horizon, like the top of a tree, a telephone pole, a cloud in the sky, a tall building. And you imagine that string pulling from your chest to the top of that building, and it kind of opens you back up and keeps you upright. Um, which can also keep your cadence up and keep you efficient. So a lot of times what happens is we fatigue and we start to lean forward and we get internal and our arms start crossing our center of plane, our body, our stride becomes less efficient and shortened. Pretty soon we're just looking at the ground right in front of our bodies, staring at the cement, staring at the trail. And to re-engage and to maybe open things back up, I suggest the whole string out of the chest technique to something tall on the horizon and that's going to realign what your arm movement, your leg movement, and all of that and keep you back in at least an efficient mode. So I have to remind myself of that because I tend to lean quite forward once I'm real smoked. Um, and it sounds like, again, a lot of people have used that lesson and it seems to work. So mm -hmm. string out of the chest that I like is just a little trick. I like that. 
I don't think I have anything else special to add other than if you don't have a mirror, I highly suggest recording yourself running at least once a month. You should know what you look like because we feel, we have this perception of what our uh, our feeling looks like. And sometimes it, we're wrong. I know. And you look at yourself and you realize, I've got a little quirk there. And it's bizarre, but that's fixable. And so yeah. seeing it's the real, really the, the powerful one. Mm -hmm. so I'd record yeah. yourself if you don't have a mirror. Yeah, a lot of people dread that whole recording themselves running thing. And, and also not just record yourself, like don't set up your phone and then jog into it and run across your, the screen and then you're done. No, like go do five by a mile and somehow be lucky enough to have somebody filming or have it set up for the last minute of that mile repeat when you're tired and everything's gone to shit and you're working hard. Not just like jogging in front of the the recording or having somebody go along with you and you're truly working. Um, I find that when you look at stride and cadence and all that, when people give you the whole, I'm going to go jog on the treadmill video, it's just not really what they're, they're thinking about what their legs right. are doing in that point. And you want to get to the point where they're on autopilot and that means working hard. Most useful race video I ever had, Kirk. And, I, and we're lucky because we've made TV coverages and races. And we're, we're very fortunate to have people capture us at our worst, our absolute worst stride. Uh, the Dallas Stadium race, probably 2018, 2019. You won that race. No, not, not the one I lost. Oh. Killian and Kent beat me. Oh, you were third, yeah. And I had these stupid, bright pink shoes on. Yep. And they just stood out on camera the whole time. And I got to watch myself get dropped and then see what happened to my form when I started to crumble. And it was so brutal and ugly to watch. I was just this. I was like that. Ah, the, the ugly twin of myself. It was everything I didn't want to see. It was terrible. And that's all I could think about during all my quality workouts for probably the Almost every workout since then, I still, this weekend, I was thinking about it when I was starting to droop. I thought, that is what your heels look like at AT&T <laughs> Stadium when you looked terrible. And they were talking about how tired you looked. Oh, uh, never again do I want someone to see me like that. I thought you were going to say West Virginia. Was I in film at West Virginia? Yeah, a couple times, like leaving the spear throw and stuff. Uh, and you were, that's after you kind of hit your... And you had the bright Scots on, so they were bright yellow too, so you could see what your legs were doing. Oh, yeah, I might have to check that out too. Because I, you need that ugly ammo to remind yourself to run pretty. Yeah. Run as if you're trying, you're running by a hot group of chicks, right, Bracken? That's right. Run by your crush. That's probably the right way to run. I always think Lisa's watching you right now. She doesn't <laughs> want a sloppy man. Nobody wants that. Nope. Yeah, I think we've uh, I think we've hit them all uh, pretty well. It's been a longer one, but I'm I'm happy. The flat running is the simplest of them all, and I think I think we gave enough there. Yeah, it's going to drive a lot more questions than it answers, and that's okay. It gets yeah. you thinking about what you need to be doing, and that starts you on the process towards optimizing. Yeah, but fundamentals and you know alone knowing how to approach sections of a race or different terrain types can actually, if we're talking longer races, which we have a lot of them coming up, and you start making correct decisions and approaching things the same, uh, differently, even if your fitness is the same then as it is now, you may tactically take minutes off of a race, and that can be a big difference between a podium or not, or a top 10 or not. So like, start thinking about those things. Implement some of the things we talked about. Experiment. That's the key. The only reason Bracken and I have a podcast is because we've experimented to death and made all the mistakes. Mm -hmm. right? So we've learned from them. So encourage you to do some of the things we talked about. Give it a try.
What do we keep saying about every one of those up, down, flat? This is why you get got to get out there and practice it. If nothing else, this gives you motivation to go do hill workouts up and down. It, it, maybe it's just the different perspective you need from, oh, I need to build my engine to, I need to be able to run downhill because then I won't crumble on the ups or whatever it is. If it's a different reason why to get out there, take it. Yeah, I agree, Bracken. I the agree end. too. And I'm $70 yeah. richer, Kirk. I want a trail race this weekend. You know what? You know what I'm gonna do? Beers on you. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you an edible arrangement for to your new house when you move in with that money. No, I think you just save it. Why don't you deliver it in person, Bracken? Why don't you come out and visit visit bring it in person? I'm gonna show up wearing an edible arrangement and a smile. <laughs> Make sure your uh, split shorts are the little longer ones because I don't want to see anything. I don't want to see Bracken. Deal. <laughs>